as most of you who are here regularly will know, we're working our way through the book of Acts this year that gives an account of how the church grew from what you'd argue is a slightly unusual um, beginning, that it seems to all hinge on simply one man dying on a cross and then being miraculously raised from the dead. That's what it hangs on. That's why we're here. And the repercussions of this event 2,000 years ago still continue to flow out into our world, and we're part of the consequences of that. Over the last few weeks, we've seen Paul in his three great missionary journeys sharing the news of the resurrected Jesus, going around to different places, places he's never been, some, new, some places he has been in these planted churches. And he's been going around correcting, teaching, training, ministering, healing, praying, encouraging, and fanning into flame what the Spirit of God has been doing. But I hope you've noticed amongst all this that actually if you were to look through it from Paul's eyes, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. This hasn't just been straightforward. Paul has faced incredible opposition, suspicion, persecution, arrest again and again. Yet he's had the delight of playing his part in God's kingdom, seeing hundreds upon thousands of people coming into the kingdom of God and being saved, of seeing people delivered from evil, seeing God do extraordinary things. And in a sense today, you might say, well, why are you? Why is Paul doing that? You know, why would Paul go through the cost? Because actually there's huge personal cost to him to do all those kind of things, this 2,000 years ago, to continue the mission and ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to look at today's text, where Paul is back in Jerusalem. And he's back in Jerusalem, and people are suspicious. News has reached the the religious leaders, and he's facing incredible opposition and pressure. He's been asked to give an account of what he's been doing, of what God has been doing. You'll notice when we come to it in the text, they start with a tiny bit of encouragement. Oh, God seems to be doing something. But by the way, what about all this other stuff that I don't agree with, that seems problematic to us? Actually, Paul, are you for real? Are you for real? Can I trust you? Are you a prophet? Are you a false prophet? Are you really from God or are you from somewhere else? Are we being deceived? And actually, you may argue that this was 2,000 years ago, but I hear that constant cry of people wanting to find truth, wanting to find hope, wanting to find that. But the question is, is what you're listening to and what you're saying true? Is it bringing you to life? Is it of God? Paul is mistaken as someone who might be just a rebellious rabble-rouser and is also beaten and arrested and people are incredibly angry with him because he's overturning lots of their Jewish beliefs of what they felt was really important and what should come first. And the honest answer is this, if you find someone saying something very different to what you believe, do we categorize them as false prophet? So Paul in this passage is on the back foot. He's on the back foot personally. He's on the back foot amongst the religious leaders. And the question is, will he wither or will he stand? When we find ourselves under pressure, 
because of a stand we made of some form, will we wither or will we stand? What we're going to look at is chapter 2 of uh, Acts, which is Paul's account uh, that Dan alluded to in his prayers, uh, where um, Paul, Paul starts, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. I'm going to pray, and then Holly's going to bring us our reading. Let me just pray. God of all history, I pray this morning that we be caught up afresh into your life and your goodness. Your kingdom come, your will be done amongst us here in Walcott as it is in heaven. Amen. Holly's going to bring us Acts 22. Hi, yes, that's Acts 22, 1 to 21, and that's on, in your pew Bibles on page uh, 1119. Cool. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias Ananias, came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood before me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speak to me. Quick, he said. Leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. 
Great, thanks, Holly. Um, so chapter 22, um, as I hope you've kind of seen, is a beautiful chapter that records Paul's story. It's a passage of scripture that we might have heard of before because we went, we were similar, a similar account, but different. Uh, Luke's account was written in Acts 9. And this is Paul's story. This is Paul's testimony of how God changed his life. Paul's life, remember, is actually on the line here. He's under deep suspicion. He's been beaten, been arrested. And actually, I think that sometimes in my Christian life, when actually I've been under pressure, I think that if only I knew perfect theology, everybody would be convinced with what I said. Don't get me wrong, Paul is full of good theology. But here, he simply tells his story. He simply tells his story of what God has done in his life, and he gives an account. He needs to speak. He needs to own it. He needs to spell it out, who he is and what he's done and what God has done in and through him. Now, I'm I'm not very often am I accused of overdoing the fact that we're Anglican, uh, and, but actually, this morning, I just want to quietly remind you that we are part of a diocese of Bath and Wells. I don't often say that. Uh, but actually, one of the things Bath and Wells diocese, uh, this was in Bishop Peter's time, that its kind of strap line is this, living the story, telling the story. We're called to live the story and to tell the story. We live our Christian life, and we're called to tell of it. What story? What's the story? Is it me? My story? Is it his story? Is it his story? And how do we hold those together? How do we speak of it? How do we tell of it? How do we find a way of communicating this story? So I wonder this morning, just a really simple question, have you ever publicly told your story of why you're here today, for example, why you're Christian? Have you told other people? Have you said what it is that means that on a Sunday morning, amongst the hundreds of other things you could choose to do, you choose to come and to worship? I've been thinking over the last few weeks and I've been thinking about Acts. I would say for me, one of the key moments in my life was the first time I stood up in front of other people and shared my story of why I followed Jesus to tell my testimony, to share my testimony. It was in a village hall in the country of Austria. I was 19 years old. I was being translated between English and German. I wasn't doing the German. They were doing the kind of English and German bit. And actually, I said it, I told it haltingly. You know, as I look back now, I'd probably say I'd say lots of things differently, but that's not the point. But I told it with conviction that I wanted to share what God had done in my life, and I wanted others to know. It really is that simple in a way. And why is this so important? Why do I look back at this moment and say that it's one of the things that, well, as I look back, that's quite important in my life? Because it was a moment when I stopped sort of saying, it's about his story, or about my family's story, or hiding in other story, and actually owned it. His story is my story. 
And I may have done that in a very rude and, not rude, in a very crude and simplistic way. I may have used lots of funny words, but that's not the point. I owned it. My life is no longer my own. I'd found good news. Good news had found me, and I wanted to find a way of trying to share it, however haltingly I did that. One of the things I'd say for us in our culture, I know there's many reasons to bemoan our culture. Actually, we are a culture obsessed with stories. And so actually, if we find a good way of sharing our story, people will listen, because everybody's trying to do it. But they're telling very different stories. So Acts 22 is a good place to have a look to see what does Paul do? Yes, it's in a particular context. And he starts his speech very simply, as you'll have noticed, and he addresses them in Aramaic right at the beginning. And it says early on in, I think, verse 2, is that when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now, why is that? Right at the beginning, Paul understands that actually, if you want people to listen to your story, you've got to find a way of connecting with them in a language in a way that will mean they will stop for a moment and listen. It's pointless being right It's pointless having extraordinary treasure if nobody will listen. And actually, really simply here, in a very simple device, doesn't guarantee success for Paul, but he gets the fact that actually he wants to connect with these people. He wants people to listen, and he's trying to find a language that will enable them to listen and to understand. Paul begins his story in verses 3 to 5, as you'll see, with an account of his past. Who are you? Where have you come from? What was your life like before you became a Christian? And of course, Paul has a very extreme story to tell. He doesn't sugarcoat his past. He doesn't try and pretend that he was a really good person or whatever it is, but simply states it. Paul was a Jew from Tarsus, deeply devout, studying under a kind of well-known rabbi, rabbi and respected rabbi called Ramek Gamaliel. He was hungry for God. He was hungry for God, but he was an opponent of Christianity. And he wasn't just an opponent of Christianity, he actively persecuted, as it describes here, followers of the way, even to death. So Paul, in these simple few verses, says, actually, I'm not a likely Christian. You know, my life as it was, was not one that would lead me to normally think that you, they might think that he would be a Christian. That's simply the reminder this morning, this, all of us have a past. All of us have a past. It may not be as dramatic as Paul, but a past of some kind. But being honest about that, realizing that is an inhibitor to come to Christ, is really important. All of us have a before Christ, a BC. All of us have a BC. Life without Jesus, and a story to tell of what that life was like. What shaped your life? What molded your life? What was part of your life before Christ? And then found in verses 6 to 13, Paul then dramatically recounts, and many of you will know this story really quite well, how God met him on the road to Damascus. Blinding light, 
Jesus speaking his name. How beautiful. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus. Remember Jesus, the one who died? But the resurrected Jesus now. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking Paul's name and speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And actually, this is the moment when the penny drops for Paul and everything begins to open up as he meets the resurrected Jesus, the one and only person who has been resurrected from the dead, as it is here. Suddenly, the meaning of Jesus' death makes sense to Paul. Suddenly, if death is not the end, if Jesus has been resurrected, then there's hope for the future for us too. If this Jesus who died on a cross and taking our sins and he's now raised from the dead, then now if we believe in him, we can be free. We can be free from our sin and free from death and hell and all that that entails. If we believe in him, sin does not define us any longer. We can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. There is hope for the future. It's not just about trying hard in life to do your best. Therefore, the promise for us, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then we too can be raised from the dead. And things can be put right. Not just through our human effort, however hard we try, will never be enough. Death is not the end. Suffering does not have the last word because the resurrected Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road. We don't need to be fatalistic anymore. Life, God's life, the Christian life is suffused with the hope of the resurrected Jesus. Paul knows it. And what we then see in these things is that it changes everything. How do you know it? It's that Paul then simply asks in verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? That's the kind of moment when you realize Paul has absolutely got it. I sometimes think there are moments when I read through Scripture, sorry, to apologize for this side, side issue, where I sometimes think God is a Yorkshireman, and he sort of said, get up. It's kind of really straight in a way that God, Jesus, speaks. And then Paul then recounts in this beautiful exchange of how Ananias um, helped Paul, healed Paul, and brought him and then called him on to what he was doing next. And the beautiful exchange, it's actually wonderful little exchange for those who know it well. And then finally, I just want to, to look in those final bits of that chapter. In verses 14 to 21, we also find that Jesus commissions Paul. says, actually, I've got a different purpose for you here on earth. Be baptized. Be cleansed. Your sins are forgiven. Now be my witness to the Gentiles. God does warn Paul but he also sends Paul out. Go, go, go. 
fulfill my purposes in the world. Now, it's really interesting, obviously, in, in all sorts of human ways, is Paul shows incredible courage under immense fire, as he has done throughout his kind of travels and throughout these accounts we find in Acts. But actually, this doesn't convince the crowd. As a consequence of that, Paul faces further persecution. However much I admire and I look at these verses and can see God in them, at the time, many, most of the people there weren't convinced. So let me just say a few things this morning to draw to your attention before we uh, move on into communion. Never underestimate the power of your story of what God has done in your life. Simple as that. Now, your story may not be my story. I grew up in a Christian home. Particularly in my younger years, I felt a deep inadequacy in my testimony. I didn't have a sex, drugs, and rock and roll story particularly um, to tell. And you kind of felt the glory is in what you used to be rather than the glory is what you're called to now be. But uniquely, God will use you to connect with people, to touch people's lives because of uniquely what God has done in your life. Your story has incredible power to touch people's lives. If you have the courage to speak, to own it, to work it, and actually that's something only you can do. I can't do that for you. It's only you who can take hold of what God is doing in your life and begin to make sense of that and begin to work with other Christians to find a way of telling that, of sharing that, of developing that, of growing that with God. But you've got to recognize God's activity in your life, however haltingly, you may say, Tim, I haven't got the dramatic story, accounts you've got of what God has done in your life. And I know some of them, I've shared them in the past. But even if it's a simple thing of just a first awareness of your own sin and a longing to do something about it, if it's a sense of kind of that sense of being alienated in the world and feeling the world was made for God, you know, you can begin your story somewhere of your awareness of God and his presence in the world and your pres- his presence in your life and his presence in the church and being aware of that. But actually, you've got to begin to work with it and walk with it and live it. And of course, there may be very dramatic things you can tell. Have you seen God do extraordinary things in your own life or in your family's life or people around you or church communities you've been part of that are, actually shape your story of who God is and what he's done in your life. And then you get the opportunity to say how that's changed you or how that is changing you. None of us is perfect. Don't need to remind you. We are a work in progress of being made into the likeness of Christ. That's a call on every Christian's life. But actually we can shape a story moving forwards of what God has done, what God is doing, and also maybe what God is calling us to. But in the what is God is calling us to, we need to begin to take steps. You may say I'm too old, I've done that all before. But every season of our life, God has a call and a purpose and, and things for us. It may be different to a previous season. You're not too young to start it. You're not too old to start it. Our stories aren't a competition in some way that this type of story makes us a big person in the kingdom of God. But actually, we can tell them. Famous verse in Revelation 13, uh, 21. And they overcame him, they're talking about the beast and the opposition, by the blood of the lamb 
and the word of their testimony. It's a beautiful little verse that talks about God's activity, which is all about the blood of the Lamb. We're coming to share communion, blood shed for, from, for us and through Jesus, and simply us sharing how that's true and made a difference. God's saving work on the cross, transforming my life, transforming your life. The other thing I just quickly mentioned, a few weeks ago we talked a little bit about the fact that Paul's life is one of purpose. And all these opportunities, all these difficulties, Paul's getting himself in, all these scrapes that Paul's finding is because he's on the move. Paul is moving. He has purpose that will place him into scrapes, that will place him into extraordinary opportunities of God do amazing things. Opposition, beautiful kingdom work. But it's only because Paul is on the move. And actually why? Actually this account here tells us why. Because Paul's courage, his wisdom, his discernment, his eloquence are really they are born of his, his experience of living out verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? Have you ever asked that question sincerely of God? You know, in, a, in an open way. <laughs> what shall I do, Lord? Take me as I am. Use me for your glory. It's a bold, bold question. What shall I do, Lord? I'm open to what you want for me. Interested, I'm available, I'm ready to fulfill your purposes here on earth. Why? Because of what you've done and you've revealed of yourself means that my life is no longer my own, but yours. What shall I do, Lord? As I said, lots of the difficulties that Paul finds himself in these accounts of being called to the Gentiles, of moving into new territory, of being called kind of a false prophet and kind of all this kind of stuff that's thrown at Paul, the offense he causes lots of the, the religious leaders of the time. What calls Paul or what keeps Paul true is that he lives the, the will and pleasure of God. You see, God has met him. He's met with the living God and revealed himself to him. That means now, actually, he knows his home. He knows what he's called to. He knows the next steps. So as we think about this and as we come to share in communion, communion together... You know, we live in a time when, do come in, it's fine. We live in a time when Jesus is, is actually respected as a wise and um, helpful leader, but actually we struggle with the idea of Jesus as saviour because we're so full of the idea that we can save ourselves. So it's particularly wonderful to come to communion, to finish our services, we kind of worship and then share communion together. Because in communion we tell simply the story of Jesus and Jesus invites us to participate, to say, yes, I'll play my part. I want to follow you. I want to do what you call me to do. Jesus' gift of mercy, of grace, of saving grace is an extraordinary gift to us. He longs to come to us, minister to us, heal us, but also to redirect the course of our lives. Will you choose Jesus this morning? Lord, would St. Swithin's, would me, would I... Would we, people who have courage 
Just simply ask the question in verse 10 and be willing to follow. What shall I do, Lord? Show us, we pray. Amen.